You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's FX podcast of Red Center, and uh, this is episode number 57. I don't know, should we even be talking about what the number is, Joe? Uh, skip the number. I always get it wrong anyway. So. It's the early March um, version <laughs> of Red Center, and um, we had a phenomenal response to last time's uh, uh, episode. You guys, some of you tweeted, some of you posted, sent emails. Um, I often like to say it's the oxygen upon which this program breathes, and and never more so than last week. So we really do thank you guys yeah, for thank feedback. you so much. It was great. So, Jace, what have we got coming up on the show this week? Okay, well, obviously, lots of news. Um, clearly, obviously, in SLR land and also um, Red Land and Panavision. But uh, also, we'll be uh, having a excellent... You had an excellent conversation with uh, Stu Mashwitz, uh, geeking out, re... Um, uh, 24, 25, 30p, and a lot of obviously um, a lot of the issues I guess we've been discussing in, in the back backstory since. Oh, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been discussing exactly, um, and in fact, uh, Stu is obviously a good friend of Red Center Podcast, and uh, Stu and I did geek out pretty heavily. One of the things we geeked out about was optical flow. Um, there's some discussion about retiming, and it tends to uh, come down to a point of well, there's sometimes there are artifacts and there are issues. And I personally thought, Jace, that we, we can perhaps too easily just say there are issues and there are some problems. You know, what are they? What are these issues that we keep talking about? What are these problems? Can't they be fixed? Is it just that somebody hasn't spent enough money or got a big enough computer? And so uh, Stu and I discuss SLRs, and in particular, um, we get really geeky, as I say, on optical flow and some of the stuff to do with retiming. No, it's fantastic because he's got some real first-hand issues, not just through um, DSLR stuff, but, uh, you know, in, he's obviously got a massive uh, post uh, background. And, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of uh, great uh, stories there. Yeah, as you guys would know, if you're a regular listener, Stu's been on the show before and uh, always a treat when, uh, when he uh, graces our presence. Um, but first, let's cut to the news desk. And now, the Red Setter News. Yeah, okay. Well, um, first thing we've got is uh, Build 30 is out for Red 1. So that is... Uh, what's interesting with this, I guess, is a crossover build. It's now starting to get some of the newer MX, uh, the newer menus that up until now has been uh, just relegated to uh, the underground of... Uh, pre-release sort of MX bodies, I guess. And so now so we're starting... What you're saying is... I was about to say, what do I care? <laughs> you're saying because you can't always use an MX. Is that what you're saying? Well, I guess it's... there's the, Basically, it's pretty much a whole... Re, the whole menu system has been sort of reworked and the, the, the histogram and all that sort of stuff, specifically in, in the exposure guides, is, uh, is you know, streets ahead from, from where it was before, yeah? Yeah, I, I really like it. Um, we are using it, obviously, on MX. Uh, I think I read somewhere from somebody uh, posting that, in fact, in this particular build, the first one that came out, uh, you'll actually end up having to change the ISO from a default of 800, which it's set for for the MX, to 320 uh, if you're on a, uh, yeah, I wonder that, a traditional uh, red one. Right, um, so, yeah, if you've got a, a traditional um, Mysterium non-MX uh, red one, it will the ISO will still default to, to 800. I believe it does, and I think right. they're fixing it in a, in a sort of a sub, you know, like a uh, partial point release. Whether that's out or not yet, I'm not quite sure. Um, but that was one of the things that we noticed, because uh, we started doing testing of the MX versus uh, red one, and just actually doing some uh, hardcore MX testing, and actually that'll be coming out, because we can't, put vision into this red center podcast we decided to hijack fx guide tv and uh, coming up in episode 76 of fx guide tv uh, we'll actually do a rundown on the uh, the mx and uh, i get to go camping but i'll tell you more about that uh, when it's out <laughs> okay yeah but no, there's a lot of great little uh, exposure guides there and extra little added stuff in histogram area which i've had to play with which really look really look uh, great and we sort of touched on that i think for last episode and, well, and of course the flood i mean just the whole idea of moving to this um much more fine detailed uh iso replacement as we like to now refer yeah to it. exactly well i guess it's time to sort of move on and uh yeah that's what's happening um, okay, now just news. Literally, just in the last day or so, um, the Epic will. Uh, there's been a bit of a, I guess you call it a spec bump from what's been planned and discussed up until now. Is this wonderful idea? And obviously, everyone's latched onto how fantastic it would be, having dealt with uh, Red Ones and their like ninety whatever minute or so startup <laughs> time, ninety seconds, ninety minutes. <laughs> so, spoken like a director. <laughs> yes. What? Hang For on a our freaking startup what, 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 time. What you, what's the bump? 
that basically uh, what was always planned and uh, spoken about for Epics would be a two-second startup time, which is negligible. And now it's gone to basically a 10-second startup time. I'm sorry. Wait a second. So I'm, <laughs> I'm like at 90 seconds and we're now at like 10 seconds. Why do I care? Huge what, seconds. What, why, is that, why is that a problem? <laughs> Let me just think about this for a second. Oh, it's up. Why, why do I care? Why is that a negative? Well, because like it's. I mean, I guess I guess it's a negative if you're, uh, you know, like Doco or Wedding or you know the hybrid stills guys. Particularly, I guess when oh, okay. we're into okay. getting you, into I, hybrid I, stills. Yeah, no, I must admit, if you're a stills guy, I can imagine that if you're using this as a stills camera, it would be very annoying to wait ten or fifteen yeah. seconds for it to start up. But I guess like Red One, you know, people sort of get used to it, and you, you know, you have your people have adapted and gone to kind of like swap over battery systems. And obviously, with the Epic, if you go with the uh, not so much with the stills side of things, but if you're uh, have the uh, you know the the battery um, battery module, then you can um, uh, hot swap batteries, and obviously always have one on board while you're removing the other. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what. Don't, don't you love the name of the prototypes, uh, Blackie, but Lucy and Desi? Blackie, Lucy, and Desi. I'm not sure what Blackie is. I'm obviously Lucy and Desi. I know. Well, I reckon Blackie would be the first time they put black paint on a aluminium unpainted yes. Epic. That Could would be, be my guess. I, that... I'm not saying that from any insider knowledge. Know. So, obviously, yeah. So, now we've got sort of 10-second startup time, which uh, in production models at the moment, proto- prototypes are starting up in 15. Okay. Don't care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, really. I well, I think there's also been a lot of talk about a sleep mode. So, maybe there will be, theoretically, if you're going a hard startup from totally totally dead or new brand battery, brand new battery, straight out of the box, maybe you've got 10 seconds. But maybe there's a little sleep mode in there as well, which hopefully, I mean, it's one of those things. You get spoiled very quickly. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, you know, if we'd never heard that it was going to be two seconds and they said we've reduced it from 90 by almost a factor of 10, we'd all be like, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, I'm sure there's some pretty crappy startup times in other cameras around. I don't know what an F900 is, but I, I remember reading somewhere that someone, the last someone, time someone rented an F900, they were told by the rental company, give it half an hour, turn it on for half an hour. <laughs> Just because they're, you know, because of dead pixel issues, you know. It's like Just a tube camera. Got to wait, got to wait till the CCD warms up. <laughs> exactly. Get some photons in there, warm it up. Yes. So anyway, yeah. No, I don't. I don't care either. It's fantastic. It's, it's, oh, man, it's better I, than ninety I, seconds. So that's I, fantastic. I care that they care I think, to get it better. Absolutely. I think the probably the most disappointed person here is Jim, who obviously would would, would love to have, have stuck on on track there. But hey, look, mate, don't don't sweat it. It's all good. Um, we're, we're still we're, we're still love you. Well, while we're on Red News, um, Mysterium X Dynamic Range. Yes, so I guess. Um, Can you before we get into this? I just no, I'm gonna, you're not going to ask me about Dynamic Range. I'm a director. No, I am going to ask you. No, I'm going to I'm going to not. I'm going to patronisingly tell you about Dynamic Range. Good. And I'm only going to do that because somebody actually asked me a question in a, a, one of our forums at FXPHG. They said, "What what is this Dynamic Range?" And also, why is ISO like 800? Like, wouldn't I just set it at 100? Why would I possibly set it higher than that? It makes no sense to me. It doesn't make any sense. And I since discovered that they were actually shooting with a digital camera that was its uh, base ISO of 100. So for them looking at red, it seemed odd that they had increased the ISO up to 800. They said, like, why wouldn't I just always run it at, at 100, even yeah. if they claim it can be 800, because then I'm just going to have tons of you know room to move in post. It's a... It's a arbitrary bloody piece of metadata. I just don't see why you guys are obsessing whether it's 320 or 800. And well, if I can just answer that question, is that right? Yep, go ahead. Okay, so, so because I tried explaining this online, but it might be easier just to say it out loud. The thing about the, um, the uh, ISO and, and, for that matter, uh, dynamic range is that, the, the, as you'll, Jason will discuss in a minute, there's results on what, how many stops latitude you have. This isn't how I rate a camera. What I rate a camera over... And it's a really simple but effective system is we shoot something and then we shoot at a stop above that, a stop above that, a stop above that, a stop below, a stop below, and a stop below. We keep going. We've got like four either side. So we've basically got nine actual clips. And then we simply try and grade those clips back to where we started. So we've overexposed by a stop. Can I color grade that back and make it look okay? Because that to me is the meaningful measure of how much latitude you have on the camera. Now, the reason that we pick an ISO is that's the midpoint of that range. So if I was to that's say... Right, that's the native speed of the chip. chip yeah, because so, if I was to pick 100, then what would happen is that I would open up the iris of the camera because obviously it's appearing to be less sensitive, and so I'd let more light in, and so I'd more quickly run out of 
uh, exposure at the top end, and so it would be much, much easier to clip and run out of space there because I'm already assuming that my starting point is at 100, which is many stops below 800, and consequently, yes, the chip it's just doing it in metadata, but, but I'm going to react to what I'm seeing on the monitor. I'm going to react to what I'm seeing in the levels if I'm not looking at the raw mode. And so what's going to happen is at 100 ISO, I'm going to open up, more light comes in, and when I in post-production need to do a fix, in other words, grade from a stop or two above or a stop or two below back to a neutral point, I won't have it there to do it. I just can't do it. And so if you were having a camera, somebody told you it was rated at, at, at 320 and you discovered that you could pull stuff down from a lot above that in ISO but not much from under it yeah you'd say that rating is wrong and yeah. that's that's what we mean by the ISO rating and and it, yes it is not changing the sensitivity of the sensor but it is a, a natural point of balance on your ability to regrade a shot and quite frankly Jace that's what I want I want flexibility and I want not to be biased into the blacks or into the whites unless I'm consciously doing it for creative reasons. I would immediately go with that guy and say, oh, well, hang on, if it's 800, why bother even work down that way? Go to 100 where obviously it's going to be cleaner and stuff. But essentially, as we've talked about ISO being just metadata, you're actually then, you're starting, you're pushing it, you're immediately, even though you think you're going in a great direction, you're pushing it away from its native sensitivity. So you're actually already... Making it work harder. Yeah, you're already already underexposing it. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. well, yeah, at 100, you're acting like you're, you're decreasing sensitivity. In the same way, if you go up to 1,000, you're increasing sensitivity. Yeah, you're immediately underexposing three stops or so. And so why would you do that? Yeah, and so that's what we're saying. So when people start talking about rating the cameras and what you like to rate them at, um, there is only one other proviso on that, which is that I do tend to think there is something to be said when speaking to a film cameraman who's unfamiliar with the red environment, if you can express it in a way, like we used to always rate the red one at 250D, being 250 daylight, for the reason that we preferred to shoot in daylight, even though, of course, it's, again, a metadata thing on the um, colour temperature. Mm. But we knew the sensor was better at that. But they knew 200D from film stocks. They knew Kodak 200D. They could kind of sense what the lighting levels were. They would pull out the light meter. And so as soon as I said 200D to them, they go, okay, I know where I am. It's comfortable and familiar. And so, yes... That is not the actual rating I would go with, but I got much more benefit from telling that guy 250D than I did from going, oh, it's 320 and the metadata means I don't have to care about colour temperature. Yeah, this is definitely thinking that's come into play with, you know, digital cinematography and DSLRs. You wouldn't even think of pulling out a can of, you know, of of 250D and going, oh, well, you know, I'll just rate it at 100 no, you know, you wouldn't and, even think of changing. You know, it's this no, I mean, irreversible people, thing that you just can't can't change. Whereas, though, though on obviously on a like if you're reading an American cinematographer from ten years ago, you'll always hear some DOP saying, "Well, I tended to rate this film at slightly faster." Absolutely, like, and you for talking, the creative environment of what they're trying to pull off. Yeah, and you're talking, you know, a third of a stop, half of a stop. Generally, that they would. Well, you know, in that interview from. you did last week, uh, you guys were talking about the shutter. If you think about that, for example, this is completely different subject to ISO, but the similar kind of um, attitudinal thing, because there you've got a DOP who's doing incredibly subtle adjustments to the shutter, Mm. um, and he was actually sticking to the 180-degree rule, albeit um, obtusely. Well, because, you see, if you're shooting... He was retiming footage, right? Yeah. So if I retime something from 150th down to 124th, Mm. then it needs to assume that it was shot at more like a 48-degree shutter because Mm -hmm. it's still going to be playing it back at that, right? Yep. So the amount of motion blur in a shot still wants to have the hallmarks of 180 degrees. Still want the motion blur of that particular frame. That's why he did not want to go to 160th because if he'd gone to 160th, he would be way above 148th. Mm. And it doesn't matter what speed he's shooting at. Um, and so, but my, my point about this is not so much that, but here's a guy who's really got a really highly trained eye who can pick the difference between 180 and a 200 degree shutter or 180 and 144. Yeah. And, and I think that's what a DOP does with rating film as well. That's a mm. really subtle adjustment. I've got to tell you, a lot of people would not be able to pick the difference between 144, 180 and 200. I don't, I'm not even saying I would actually necessarily be able to pick that if I was shown that in a, in a test environment. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's all lots of little subtleties. One forty-four. You probably, you probably, you're probably selling yourself short. I'm sure you'd be able to see it. It's probably for that particular project for T4. It's adding that little bit of crispness, little bit of sort of brittleness to the image. It's that sort of sharpening things up a little bit. And obviously, what he was talking about when he was uh, talking about, you know, maybe shooting at fortieth or 50, uh, whatever he said he was going to do. 
um, that was based on the fact that he you know that this is an electronic shutter and the film side of things that you're comparing it to is this sort of more organic and light and you know it was a little bit of a physical thing okay well and that you you can't necessarily compare it mathematically okay well after we stopped recording our interview this week with Stu, he came up with a phenomenally interesting point that is never but this is the level of subtlety that the great Stu meshwich actually thinks at um he was pointing out and i never thought of this, this is absolutely true when you compare it to a film shutter, a film shutter sits, as you know, Jace, a couple of mil in front of the film plane inside the camera. And, of course, people talk about film cameras having rolling shutter because, in fact, it isn't an on-off with the uh, rotating blades of the circular right. shutter system. So it slides into place and it slides out of place. This gives you an apparent rolling shutter. But on a, on a digital camera, that rolling shutter is, on a per-line basis, very, very accurate, hence when you... Use a flash. Like scan lines on a CRT. Yeah. But on a film camera, that that is actually, because it's sitting a couple of mils out in front, going to have a defocused edge on the shadowing of the rolling shutter. In a sense, it puts a soft edge wipe. This is Stu's point, not mine. Yep, yep, And so this is the level of subtlety. It's a softer scan. It's a softer, exactly. So if you had Mm. a highlight that was cut off by a rolling shutter artifact type thing from a blade of a camera, it would actually tail off rather than be sliced off the way a digital camera would. And the direction of the shutter would be different depending on the camera manufacturer, perhaps, or the particular camera. Now, now you've beaten me. You've beaten me. But I, I'm sure, Stu, would know. You probably know. I don't know which way. For some areas, it might be sort of go top to bottom and uh, and some pan of... Uh, anyway. Anyway, there's going to be different depending on cameras. So, some so, more of that kind of geeky discussion coming up later in the show with Stu. And I, I've gone into a mega rat hole, but you guys tell us that you quite like our technical rat holes. But anyway, the reason I brought this up... We don't do them up, on purpose. No is that um, we were about to discuss the dynamic range and the rating of the camera. Yeah, so Neil had that question. Yeah, so Neil Smith and his crew from Hollywood DI uh, did a basically an over and under sort of shooting comparison and basically came up with 13 stops. Now, I'm not sure what, whether that means you can do six up and four down, or but basically from overexposing exposing to underexposing, you get a 13-stop dynamic range which um, would be interesting to know more of that and find out actually how much is the, you know, how much can you go under, how much can you go over, I suppose, to get to that 13 Well, stops. the takeout for me on the MX, having played with it, is the noise floor. Like the big... Um, yeah, and people really that's identified where the game's going to be. Yeah, okay. but it's, it's not like it's the unsung hero because it has been a champion by anyone that's had an MX under their, um, under their arm. But the noise floor is so gorgeous. Mm. We are lifting up uh, in gain, not just in gamma, and not seeing that characteristic uh, noise floor. And I don't know how they're doing it, but it's there's got to be something going on under the hood there that uh, I completely, you know, I'm not worthy. Because the noise floor, the ability to not get the blacks getting useless quickly is yeah. superb. And when they do start to milk out, it's actually looking more, it's looking like grain. Yeah, it's not looking digital. For, it's not looking digital. It's looking a bit more <clears throat> organic than, than actual sort of noise. Interesting. So, well, obviously it'd be great to, you know, obviously as more people start to get the MXs in their hands, we'll, you know, get a bit more info on this. And obviously I'm a, I should ping Neil Smith and his guys and sort of get a bit more info on that. Perhaps I should have done that before I started this podcast. Hey, uh, <laughs> but, but hey, you have I've been, been busy. Bit, yeah, you've been busy. You've been sliced and diced. Um, <clears throat> Jace. Canon news. Let's shift gears. But I haven't had any Nikon news for a while. I hope that we can come back from NAB with terrific... Uh, I'm sure, because they keep Nikon on crapping news. on it. They're going to just blow the competition away, and they're going to change the whole industry. And so this is all the sort of Nikon noise. But you know, at the moment, it's just uh, just a bunch of static. Um, Panavision. Uh, I... I have tried to get independent uh, opinion on this. Yeah. So you were joking about research, but we have actually tried this. But there is an article that was printed in the LA Times about Panavision uh, being handed over to its creditors. So basically, this is not that it's going Chapter 11 per se. It's just that the ownership of the company is shifting based on the creditors stepping in and requiring presumably payments that they couldn't get, and presumably this has resulted in the shift of ownership. Um, We've contacted Panavision both in Australia and in the US um, several days ago trying to get uh, an official press release on this, so we can only go off what was in the... um uh, in the LA Times, but the LA Times is the LA Times. Right? It's a very acceptable um, news source. Yeah, as you say, there's no sort of doom, and, not too much doom and gloom. It does seem to be, and I'm in no way a, ne- a legal mind whatsoever. 
but uh, it does seem a little bit like there's been a lot of buying and selling of companies and, and dumping of debt on into Panavision and taking it out. So there's been just a lot of sort of paper shuffling around it there that it seems like... Um, well, the fact that they, they're quoting in this article that Panavision has $260 million worth of, um, of debt is, is quite, quite a lot. Sure, a sure. A quarter of a billion dollars worth of debt. Yes, but uh, not necessarily debt that they've actually acquired. It seems to be in, in a lot of um, buying and selling of, of Panavision and its shifting owners that debt's been you know lumped in with it and not necessarily all of its own fault. Well, so, Panavision employs 1,200 people worldwide, according to this LA Times article, and for their sake, if for their sake alone, um, I hope that everything goes really well with Panavision, though speaking as somebody who rents Panavision gear and works with them, um, I really hope that the uh, company... Because the industry is just so much better with Panavision. Oh, absolutely. Look, you know, they've just done and developed so many fantastic, interesting things, and I'm hoping they're still going to continue to do so, and hopefully this is not going to affect... Uh, any further development from them, or be it Genesis Two, or you know more film gear, or you know new new lenses. So it did sound like that in the restructuring they were going to halve that debt and also end up, I think, with about forty million worth of um, operating capital moving forward, which is is a positive sound. That that really does sound like a proper restructuring, not a euphemism for um, you know we're trying desperately to cling on to something that's not working yeah well i mean but it, it, it that said the rental only system is must be quite st- hard to hang on to these days in you know in a diminishing sort of studio market where you know a lot of a lot of places that would theoretically have their own camera room and have cam panavision cameras in their own camera room on permanent hire a lot of those cameras, a lot of those shows, obviously, are moving to digital only. So, yeah. Anyway, time will tell. But uh, it's probably uh, all a lot less gloomy than is uh, first reported. So, um, changing gears uh, back to Canon, uh, the much rumoured, much yes. mentioned twenty-four P firmware update. We actually have a date. Uh, we got the official press release here at Red Center during the week, and we tweeted about it. It's uh, mid-March. Yep, March 16. And pretty much the rumors stacked up. Yeah, exactly. That's what we've been sort of hearing. Unfortunately, what we haven't been hearing, obviously, is what I've been slowly over the last couple of weeks um, getting, you know, getting used to the fact that I wouldn't be getting, we wouldn't be seeing 50p and 60p. Um, obviously, again, you'll touch on that uh, in your interview with Stu. But uh, obviously, one of the few, there was a few unexpected things included, which are fantastic, which obviously most most people would know by now. But the inclusion of manual audio level controls i really thought that would still be the domain of magic lantern uh, but we're definitely going to have manual audio controls audio levels and the other thing is that obviously they've changed the audio sampling frequency to 48 from 44.1 so is that actually making it is that what's been causing all of this sort of audio retiming issues in in final cut there's been a lot of people having to re um shift audio because of uh, sampling frequency issues you know much about that mike uh, I know a bit about it. It's probably more actually to do with the fact that it was 30p and not 29.97, um, I, would, I would hesitate to guess, because most of the independent audio recording gear, um, I think what you're – I think, I'm not sure what you're referring to, uh, is a sync problem that comes more from that than from actually the, right. the uh, sampling frequency, uh, because the frame, sampling frequency should have no problem with, um, with going out of sync because assuming that you're using the right frequency or – yeah. Uh, convert accordingly, you, you, you should be fine. But the problem is shooting an actual 30p in a proper 29.97 world is, uh, is definitely going to cause things to go out of sync that would otherwise appear to have been sunk um, but a few minutes ago. And obviously, and the other inclusion, which I don't think anyone was necessarily expecting, is to have histogram displaying while you're shooting uh, movie in movie mode, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Because uh, it hasn't really. I mean, what would be interesting to see is what that histogram looks like when it's you know a simple eight bit color and you know a simpler you know a simple color space. Um, and not as much information, I guess, as uh, you know when you're shooting uh, a stills when you're seeing your stills histogram. But nonetheless, getting great exposure guide while you're shooting would be fantastic for you know just to uh, if nothing else, rather than just looking at the image and just guessing is it hot or is it not. So that's fantastic. So you know, on the whole, they've done a great job, and they should be applauded for you know adding adding these features. It's taken a bloody long time to actually make the camera run slower than it did originally. <laughs> 
but uh, mm. look, it's it's here. Well, Congratulations, everyone. We've made something that ran at 30. Go at 25 or 24. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you. Uh, another interesting thing is that the, these the new camera shipping now have been spotted with uh, in the wild with, with this firmware on it already. Well, because you'd be really annoyed if it went the other way, wouldn't it? Is that I bought a camera after the firmware had come out and it's still got the old firmware in it. Um, so to so, talk about this more, um, let's cross to the interview we did uh, earlier with uh, Stu. Uh, Stu picked us up from uh, Los Angeles because uh, Stu... Jace really has been one of the people at the forefront of arguing of the cinematic qualities and virtues of 24p. Absolutely, he was really front, uh, you know, role on the bleeding edge of uh, getting these cameras before there was manual uh, manual exposure mode even. And uh, I think it was a lot of his voice and the power of you know his fantastic blog Prolost that actually got you know got some of those early firmwares across the line. And uh, as you can, as he's pointed out, even some of their press release actually quote some of his requests almost word for word. So it's Definitely, they are they are listening and uh, listening to Prolost and its uh, its followers. And I'm joined on the line by Stu. How are you, sir? I am good. Good to be here. Nice to have you back on uh, Red Center. Always a pleasure. So you're blaming everybody else for this uh, announcement of the 5D Mark II 24P 25 update. Uh, yeah, you know, I am. I'm, I'm obviously thrilled about it. And, uh, it was an opportunity. This announcement was an opportunity for me to look back at 18 months of, you know, blog posts, uh, of my own uh, on the subject, as well as a lot of community rallying around, uh, the camera and the pros and cons of it. And, um, it's, it's kind of exciting to think that a big faceless company like Canon, may have actually listened to our requests and responded. So let's, let's, um, let's really hit on this. I know we have discussed it in the past, but for those that, that haven't listened to every ep of uh, Red Center or, or always read your blog, why do I care so much about 24? And why did Canon themselves, in their own press release, describe 24 as a real cinematic experience? Yeah, and uh, they uh, they actually described it as quote the optimum frame rate for cinematic video, and I yeah. think that's a good uh, way to describe it because uh, there are both artistic and technical reasons why twenty four is uh, handy. Um, twenty four frames is close enough to twenty five that uh, we've been able to consider those two frame rates interchangeable. So that in and of itself is extremely important for international distribution um, on video and on, on film. Um, but, you know, as, as uh, I recently expounded at length on in a Mac video interview, uh, personally to me the issue with 24 is that it's the way movies look. And it's certainly not entirely responsible for the way movies look, but it's a big part of it. And when the Canon, for, when the, when the Canon 5D Mark II first came out, you know, the, the blog post I posted on ProLost was so close Canon, because I just thought, here's this amazing large sensor, these amazing lenses and this, uh, HD resolution video. Um, but it's running at 30 frames per second, which is really kind of a nowhere man's land for, uh, uh, for for of a frame rate, it 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 only works to play it back on NTSC video. It it's just close enough to twenty four that you can kind of get away with thinking maybe it's a negligible enough difference until you try doing something like intercutting it with twenty four frame material from another source or trying to do international broadcast of it. That kind of thing. It's it's just kind of a a problematic frame rate, and yet it was close enough that people started using it and liking it and liking the results of the look they were getting. And I, I began to worry that Canon might think that the success of the camera in a way was an indicator that 24 frame wasn't important. Uh, I'm really, really gratified to see that they not only understand it to be important, but that they can put it into writing. So, I mean, why, obviously in the landscape, this is, as you say, one part of the equation. And I would, I would, uh, suggest that we've still got a couple of other places where SLR cameras 
um, are not across the line, such as the fact that the down resing to the uh, 1920 by 1080 is done by a uh, less than full uh, interpolation mode. And secondly, mm -hmm. that the colour that we're getting out of them is still 8-bit. But if we just yeah. stick with this frame rate for a second, why not just uh, take the 30 and run it through Chronos uh, or, or Twixter or something and just uh, change it that way? I mean, why, do I, why can't I just speed it up in post? Yeah, well, you know, it's, th that's an issue that, a question that I've been asking myself for well over 10 years now. I, you know, the, the, the very first version of Magic Bullet, which we developed in the uh, early 2000s, that was the entire purpose of it. It's, a, it's funny to think back to this time, but it was a, a $1,000 plug-in that only ran on After Effects, only on the Mac. And its primary purpose was to convert interlaced video to 24p. And it was a successful product. Um, it's uh, kind of mind-blowing to think of that now. Um, so but, issues but, of, in, in seri but, but Just sorry to jump in here, but there's actually no, no, a bit of ahead. a difference between 30 frames interlaced, that is what I would get out of a telecine that had 24-frame film run into it, and yeah. getting 30-frame P, in other words, 30-frame that's progressive, and 24, because the Canon camera was not producing 30-frame, I know you weren't referring to that, but the camera yeah. wasn't producing 30-frame interlace in that way. It wasn't a 3-2 pull-down problem. It was an actual frame problem. Yeah, and, that, and that, you're right. That is a very big difference. Um, it's actually a little bit easier to convert 60i to 24 than it is to convert 30p to 24, because with 60i, you have 60 hertz of information, and you can actually... Uh, you have more motion data to work with, even though you have less uh, spatial data to work with, just mm. to get a little geeky there for a second. Um, we like geeky. with <laughs> with, uh, with converting 30p to 24, which is definitely something that I um, uh, worked really hard on when the early uh, uh, progressive scan cameras came out, because we had 30p cameras before we ever had a hint that we would have a 24p camera. So in the early days of the orphanage, when we were doing these kind of film-out conversion things, we, uh, we had, for instance, a documentary filmmaker who had shot her entire movie and edited it entirely at 30p. And her movie actually turned out to be very successful and needed to be screened on film for, an, for Academy consideration. And that was when she entered a personal hell of trying to figure out a way to convert her entire film that had been shot 30p uh, to 24p, just so that she could make a film out, just so that she could be considered for Academy consideration. So her story is one that I often recount when I'm when, when people say, "Well, if you if you have modest aspirations for the distribution of your piece, then maybe 30p is fine." It's like, well, you know, never sell yourself short. I, it, it's a big enough difference that you do need to start to get pretty clever when you want to think about how you convert it. And, and that cleverness is embodied in those plugins and tools that you just uh, listed off there. Um, the, the, the technology that is inside of, uh, for instance, the Twixter plugin uh, or, the, or the Foundry's uh, retiming tools uh, is, is known as um, optical flow. And what's happening is that uh, sophisticated algorithms are tracking every single pixel in the frame or, or a good approximation of every single pixel in the frame, seeing where they're going and uh, building new frames that represent the time in between those frames. And so what winds up happening is that every frame that you put on the screen is a computer's best guess at what would have been in front of the camera at a time that the camera wasn't actually shooting. And uh, it's amazing that that works at all because, of course, it, 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 under the best of circumstances, it has to be uh, a, a guess. There, there, there are plenty of cases where the guess can be great, but if an actor blinks, the difference between the frame where their eye is open and the frame where their eye is half closed and the frame where their eye is fully closed is so substantial that at that point the algorithms are working overtime to kind of guess and suddenly something that was a subtle little gesture of a performance by an actor is now kind of a smeary, possibly artifacted, blurry best guess at what that blink could have been. And to me, I just have a really fundamental artistic problem with that. 
even when it appears to work, I think it's not it's less than desirable to have a bunch of best guesses up there on the screen. But there's so many times where it doesn't even appear to work, where you have, you know, a, a picket fence panning by in front of a house and the picket fence is pulling the house along with it. Um, or helicopter blades spinning in front of a building and they, and, and they seem to be swirling the building. And, uh, you know, anyone who's ever had to retime a shot for some sort of technical reason, like mastering and needing to match an avid retime or something like that, knows that usually something, even these amazing Academy Award-winning tools like Twixter, uh, they, they, they're a good starting place, but you wind up needing to do a lot of work by hand to... Uh, to fix these technical problems that arise. I think one of the problems here, and I'm going to get even more technical because I think you're being uh, generous in explaining that problem. Because I think the, one of the problems when somebody explains that, to, especially someone that comes from a photographic background, is that it doesn't seem at first glance that if I'm tracking a pixel between two frames, that that's as hard a problem as it actually is. But I think the the... the the reason I say you're being generous is uh, because obviously that's a good way of explaining it. But in reality, the bigger problem that the computer has to start with in the first place is the identification of which pixel in the second picture was the pixel from the first pixel uh, from the first picture. So this comes down to a problem that I like to refer to as the chicken and the egg problem. If you knew what all the objects in the scene were, like you knew that was a car, you knew that was a building, you knew that was a picket fence, then being able to pattern match the picket fence in the next frame, maybe that would that would be not as bad. The problem that the computer has is it neither knows that that's the car, the picket fence, and the house. And the only way it can tell those three apart is if they move differently to each other. So the problem becomes, do I know it's an object because it's moving? But if I knew it was an object, I could tell it was moving. And so (laughs) this is why the computer has so much difficulty. It isn't like it's given the template of, here it is in frame B, here it is in frame A, and now you interpolate between, which is what I think people go to because they use that analogy of in-betweening in cell animation. Mm-hmm. And in that case, the artist has literally drawn the two keyframes and the computer tries to interpolate in the middle. What the computer has an enormous amount of problem with is your, your example with the eyes is a good one. I think another one is in that example where the car goes by and reveals uh, something behind it, perhaps a, a part of the letterbox that was never previously there. It's very yeah. hard for the computer to identify that, oh, that was previously existing in the previous frame, you couldn't see it, but now I've deduced from all the movement that these are separate objects and that this must have been an object that was revealed and hence I'll put it in behind the previous object. And not only that, but I'll move it over to the left a bit where it should have been, even though I had no idea where it was because now it's suddenly been revealed. And once you start thinking about it from that point of view, it's, it's no wonder that the darn computer doesn't nail it every time out of the gate. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's very well said. And and the other problem is perceiving motion where there is none. We we in the early days again of these kinds of things, we had another film that had been shot 30p. We were trying to convert it to 24, and we had a, a it was just a simple interview shot, a pretty static shot of just a guy sitting there talking. We thought, well, this will be a no-brainer. Well, the problem was that the guy had a pattern on his shirt. And the pattern repeated. And so the pixel tracking algorithms were seeing the pattern uh, and then the adjacent pattern, and would occasionally think that instead of a shirt that didn't move, it was a pattern that had leapt, you know, up and to the left by 20 pixels. And so this poor guy was sitting there, and his shirt was like squirming as if he was, as if he had a swarm of rats underneath it. And it was really disturbing to look at. And we wound up having to mat out his shirt and use a different frame rate conversion technique for just his shirt. Um, so the nature of the difficulty of the problem is is such that uh, Twixter can win a Scientific and Technical Academy Award for their efforts, even though it's only a partially successful solution. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, uh, another classic, uh, and just to, to, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, alluding to these and, and sort of identifying a few of them, because I do think it really is essential if you are relying on, say, Kronos, uh, which is the, the foundry one, if you're yeah. relying on something like a Kronos to do your retiming, then you need to know that that, as is with Twixo, it's Academy Award-winning stuff. But, you know, one of the problems that it has in it is what's called single-motion assumption. And single-motion mm-hmm. assumption is that it assumes any object is moving only one way or one direction. It could be coming towards you or back, but it's only one object. Well, of course, in a scene where I have a window uh, or a book that has a large reflection on it, the book, if you like, and its texture... Uh, a shiny book is moving to the left, but the reflection of what is being reflected in the cover, maybe it's a magazine, is moving the other way. And so the computer finds it incredibly hard to deal with the fact that this one object, which is a shiny magazine or book, is both moving to the right and its reflection is coming from the left. And so 
breaking single motion assumption, chicken and egg problem, and as you said, pattern replication and uh, incorrect identification are just three of the areas that cause these weird artifacts. And I think to a certain extent we've, we've sort of uh, and I don't think at Red Centre we, we speak down to anyone, but it's easy to try and simplify the problem because we want to explain it. And yet, once you start getting into some of the complexity of it, you can see why it'll be quite often that you'll get a very ugly artefact that'll come through. And it's not because these guys have not done a good job in writing algorithms or there's some more expensive version that works. It's just yep. this is killer hard maths. Yeah, it's, it's so, so true. And anyone who wants to experiment with it, uh, you know, I highly recommend it. Um, there are tutorials out there for using the motion estimation inside of Apple's compressor to do this frame rate interpolation. Uh, give it a try. Mo- most people, you know, anyone who has Final Cut Pro has compressor. Uh, the, the Foundry's Kronos engine is bundled inside of After Effects, uh, both as an effect called Time Warp and also as the native retiming uh, solution when you turn to uh, a clip that's been retimed on the timeline to best quality. Uh, Twixter is available for a trial download and works on almost every host application you can imagine. Um, so, you know, try it out and, and see for yourself how it works on your footage um, and see if you like the results and the render times and the workflow that that implies with that kind of uh, conversion. For me, uh, you know, I just think back to the years before we had 24p cameras and, and those those difficult times of working through those problems. For me, that was something that I struggled with day in and day out for for years up until uh, Panasonic came out with the first uh, consumer 24p camera. And this was even before, you know, uh, Sony had come out with the 24p professional cameras. So, so uh, you know, I was just... <laughs> so overjoyed at that time that someone had come out and rendered my own technology, my own magic bullet technology obsolete, uh, so happy to be done with that frame rate conversion issue uh, that I just can't imagine going back to that world of of uh, mushing my pixels around, hoping that it works. And I mean, obviously, the, the thing is f- that this release by Canon appeals to many of us at many different levels. I mean, for example, I'm sure some people would just be ecstatic with just the audio uh, monitoring differences that we're seeing in this release. And of course, people with 7Ds are already screaming from the rafters that they would like that in the 7D. And to a certain extent, you know, you may like the look of 30P and you may think that that is the look that you want. And if you are a sports nut who spends all their time watching NFL uh, and just really feels that they want that look and isn't after a cinematic look because that's just not what appeals to you. There's nothing wrong with shooting 30 at a technical level. It's just, I mean, a good example for me, Stu, I think is, is the rolling shutter. So obviously my analogy to yours is that I spent years uh, dealing with 3D tracking and trying to get very successful tracks so that we could put an object into a scene and someone wouldn't say it was sliding. So, of course, for me, rolling shutter is a huge issue because uh, it means that objects moving closer to camera are therefore likely to be travelling across the screen faster than objects in the distance, which means they exhibit more of the skewing. So the picture itself isn't skewed. It's just objects moving close to camera appear to be a be a bit skewed and objects way in the distance aren't moving very much tend to not be. And classic case, if looking out the window of a train the telegraph poles right beside the train track are going to be leaning over and the distant mountains are completely fine. Now, in an artistic sense, there's nothing wrong with that shot. I mean, if somebody likes the look of out of a train off, shot off on a rolling shutter, then knock yourself out. Of course, if you're the guy that has to put a robot running from the mountains towards the train to smash the window, then you start to get really, really upset by rolling shutter. And, yeah. and of course, uh, you know, the rolling shutter is, uh, as I say, um, at that respect, you know, a bit dependent on the sort of work you're doing with the production. If you're doing a documentary and filming and you just happen to get a guy trying to assassinate the president of Bolivia or something, that's newsworthy footage. And for the love of God, I don't care about rolling shutter. Who would? But yeah. if you were trying to use it in an effects-heavy environment, you'd have your post people just crying into their uh, into their laptops <laughs> and, and keyboards as they try to solve some of these things. So, so again, when we're talking about these things, a lot of it is, I think, framed uh, with our perspective. Certainly, my perspective is similar to yours. Um, a post-heavy background, one that's that's very much in terms of technical um, technical work. And that's why I think also you and I probably would both agree that, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that we've still got an SLR shooting 8 bits is, is less than optimum. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that. I, I think 
Um, it's, you know, I did a, a post recently on ProLost about how color correctable this footage really is. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's better than a lot of people make it out to be. Uh, I, it, it, and it is still a, a real issue. Um, you know, it's eight bits in what's effectively a YUV or that's sort of a shorthand for, for what it really is, but it's fine to call it YUV, um, uh, format. Um, how that YUV is decoded matters a lot as well. Storing things in eight bit YUV is not so terrible, but, uh, converting them back to RGB and staying in 8 bits the entire time is where you start introducing problems. And you can see this when you bring uh, you know, uh, your 5D footage into After Effects and just look at the histogram. The histogram has missing sections in it, and that just shows you everything you need to know about uh, the fact that you're not even getting a full 8 bits worth of material out, out of this footage. Um, you know, again, similarly to the undesirability of the workflow that depends on like a motion retiming my workflow with my uh 5d and 7d footage does involve uh a heavy amount of of uh post-processing to try to overcome the challenges of that uh, 8-bit origination yeah i mean i certainly built a i mean for a while i was very much focused on hd cam footage so it was around the time that star wars shooting in australia and we fed up set up one of the first hd post houses in sydney and at that time, HD cam was our only recording option. This is way before, of course, the time of RED. And just to be mm-hmm. clear about this, HD cam as opposed to HDSR was right. the format used on Star Wars. It actually had generational loss. It, was, yeah. um, it had uh, a lot more compression. Today's yeah. HD cam or an HD cam SR um, doesn't have that level of compression. It has a, a minimum of like two to one, which is about what a DigiBeta has, and no one cared. But back yeah. then we managed to get very successful commercials done. But every once in a while, I'd have a shot of a sky, and I had a runner, I remember, going across the sky, and the thought was we wanted to richen up the sky and have more of a grad in it, and could we make it look like it was more like a polarizing filter had been used, blah, blah, blah. So all seemed reasonable requests, and I started playing with it, and blocking artifacts appeared. And it was just one of those, well, most of the time, I'd say, not a problem. In this particular case, it is. And it was a heck of a problem because, of course, the natural way to get around that problem would be to key it. And, and I'd key in the blue channel, and that was exactly the problem I was having in the first place. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the keyers are almost like uh, specifically designed to show off these problems. <laughs> yeah, it's like, isn't it true? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, so were we able to run a company using HD cam? Absolutely. But was it a joy when I got to SR decks and beyond that to straight data? You friggin' bet it is. And so, <laughs> of course, similarly with you, I'm like, well, I don't want to go back to that. I left that. I was, I, yeah. you know, I moved on from that. Can I, can I get some new stuff? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I would definitely agree with that. Um, so I think the thing about this, uh, this release from Canon is that it's a really significant response and, of course, a terrific joy to those people that had bought the, uh, the 5D because they wanted video. When 5D first came out, there was no 7D and other options were more limited. And so I think it's always great when that is a, it's a, like a retrofit. It allows you to go back and improve your camera as opposed to having to just dump your 5D and get a, a 5D Mark III, for example. That would have been a miserable um, solution. So I think we, we need to applaud uh, those aspects of it because I you know, really do think it makes a big difference. And, um, and as I said, the audio stuff alone for some people would be enough to, um, yeah. to make or it. Or even, uh, even just the change from it being 30.0p to 29.97, that's, that's probably a, a bigger deal for some people than the addition of 24p. Well, again, uh, let me ask that question. Why, why would I care that it's suddenly on some weird number as opposed to what seemed like a sensible number of 30 frames? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, the, uh, the issue has to do with audio sync. So uh, NTSC video... Uh, just to further the torture that we have to deal with with NTSC video, it, it doesn't run at 30 frames even. It runs at 29.97, uh, which is a technical holdover from the time when color was introduced to the signal. And uh, so as a result, uh, if you have an external audio recording device, such as like the Zoom H4n or, or any other kind of external audio source, or just even another camera, a proper video camera that you're trying to use in conjunction with your uh, SLR, the um, you're going to have sync issues. So just that tiny little fractional offset 
from 30 to 29.7 means that you can uh, more easily use the 5D in a more professional context uh, with uh, external audio devices. And if you've ever sat in a post-suite at 3 o'clock in the morning and some of your footage is a frame out of sync and it's unacceptable to go to air and you just really want to go to sleep, um, <laughs> having things go out of sync is a complete nightmare. Um, yeah. Stu, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, this, not, and not having a go counter because I do applaud them for doing this, but... There was some speculation that this would have a 720p, 60-frame p um, option that hasn't yeah. materialized. Um, what's your feeling about the idea of shooting uh, with these cameras at uh, 60p, albeit down at 720? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll back up a step from that and just say that, you know, I, I, like you, I applaud Canon for doing this. In a way, I, I after they released the 7D, I'm, I'm a little bit even surprised that they did. You know, um, I, I do want to stress that while I urged Canon to make this change, I was urging Canon to kind of make this change in the big picture sense of things. It's not so important to me that they, you know, that they fix my camera. It's just important to me that they make uh, you know that they make progress in this area, um, so it's great that they updated the uh, the five D. But you know, I I also bought a seventy, as you know, immediately when it came out, and, and you did as well, because uh, I wanted to respond. I wanted to vote with my feet when it came to showing Canon that they were taking steps in the right direction. Um, so now I've got my seventy, which can shoot uh, all the frame rates I like, plus these seven twenty p modes, which it seems my five D will not uh, suddenly sprout mid month. Uh, uh, along with its other new features. Um, and I, I really do enjoy the ability to shoot 60 and 50 frames for a slow-mo effect. Uh, I'll shoot 60 frames with my 7D, and I will um, conform that to 24 frames using every frame so that you get the nice uh, 240% uh, slowdown effect. It's, 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 it's really great. Um, it, however, does cast into bold relief one of the most notorious problems with these SLRs, which is, as you mentioned earlier, that uh, the downsampling issue um, uh, on the 5D uh, or on the 7D, the um, the downsampling technique that is used to create the uh, the 60 frame material is even more harsh than the one that's used to create the uh, the video in the in the 1080p modes, and so. Uh, if you thought that the uh, aliasing and moiré artifacts were kind of an occasional thorn in your side at 1080p, at 720p, they're going to be almost ever-present. So uh, it is something to look out for. The 720p modes, you have to be even more careful about the alias art- aliasing artifacts. That said, I'm I'm really happy to have them, and uh, <laughs> and. In an odd sort of way, it creates a new relationship between my 5D and my 7D. I've got my 5D for the uh, you know 1080p modes where shallow depth of field is paramount, and I want the relationship between my lens focal lengths that I'm accustomed to when shooting stills with the 5D, and then on the on the 7D side. Um, I have this extra seven. The seventy almost becomes my overcrank camera. I'll reach for the seventy on those occasions where I want to shoot something at sixty frames. I mean, I think the thing is that uh, again, this is a, a taste thing. Obviously, if you are wanting to capture something like your child diving into a swimming pool, how brilliant to be able to shoot at uh, at sixty frames a second. Um, but yes, if you had a, an instance where we're talking about um, something with a lot of horizontal lines. Um, it could be an issue, uh, that, that drop-down. And so I guess we, we applaud Canon. We just point to the fact that um, ultimately there is still a couple of other areas like this down-resing, like the, uh, the colour bit and stuff. That, and I've got to tell you, even on-camera audio monitoring, that is still a big bugbears for me. Um, I would love it to see at some point a uh, you know, headphone jack on my Canon, um, proper audio monitoring with you know, these other things, and we hope all the things will come over time. How about a, a flip-out LCD or, or some kind of uh, assistance with focus, some kind mm. of uh, edge enhancement mode or any other kind of way to kind of help you 
uh, check whether or not you're in focus or, or heck even why not uh, take a stab at autofocus. It's going to be a hard problem, but you know, uh, they sell far less expensive cameras that have very sophisticated uh, face and object tracking autofocus mechanisms in them. And, uh, and hey, why not throw it in there? Maybe it won't be useful all the time, but there, there might be times where it would, it would really save your butt. So I need to finish this up by just asking you the killer question, which is, let's say we are now mid-March, two weeks from now, this uh, plug-in, sorry, this uh, firmware update is out and with all new 5D Mark IIs. Uh, does your opinion change on what camera I should buy if you got a blog post that literally said, I want to shoot video and some stills? I like Canon lenses and I've had them in the past. What camera should I buy? Do you, you had previously said uh, on this topic, and I think I, I also uh, echoed the remarks, that if you need a camera right now, get the 7D because it's there and it works and it's not too expensive. Has your opinion changed? Well, I think the the, the answer to that question can be linked directly to the experience that you want for shooting stills. Um, they're, they're neck and neck uh, on the video side now. There's some negligible differences, um, but maybe shooting 60 frames is really important for you, in which case that's the deal breaker. Um, f- for me, you know, the experience of shooting stills with a full-frame camera really... Uh, transformed my digital photography enjoyment back to that feeling that I used to have when I shot film with my, uh, you know, Nikromat uh, film SLR, you know, so uh, I wouldn't want to give up that experience for anything. So I would not buy a 7D to shoot stills with. Um, uh, so if, if the idea of a full frame SLR appeals to you, and you also want to shoot video, then guess what? There's only one camera you need to buy. <laughs> um, but uh, if you would like to s- maybe take that, uh, take a substantial amount of cost uh, out of the camera body and maybe put it into glass and buy, by the way, much more affordable glass for the 7D than one would tend to buy for the 5D Mark II, um, you can really still get an incredible uh, amount of video uh, performance. And, oh, by the way, you have Canon's flagship APS-C stills camera. And, that, and, there, and there are plenty of people for whom that is going to be the perfect stills camera or even way more stills camera than they ever thought they would need, you know. Um, so it's a it's an opulent world of uh, wonderful options there. The, the idea to you, that you'd even be considering uh, the uh, 5D Mark II uh, as as a oh yeah and also it shoots stills kind of a, a camera is is kind of crazy to me because I remember the decision that I made years ago to buy the first 5D for myself and what a big deal it was to make that kind of an investment in a camera body and 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 what it did to my to my my digital photography experience, um, it's, it's a world of riches that we live in at this point. The, the 5D is still a pretty expensive camera. Uh, the 7D, I think, remains in a filmmaking sweet spot of uh, the right price, the right features, and compatibility with a whole host of amazing lenses that range from the ext- extravagant to the very affordable. I mean, I think the bottom line is, and this is so adequately reflected for me in just what I'm sitting... I'm sitting here at my house, um, lovely view out the window, and beside my desk is my Fender Stratocaster. And I've got to say that there is nothing about that guitar that needs to be changed. But they've been making them for decades, right? But that mm-hmm. guitar does everything that I want it to do. It does nothing that justifies getting a different guitar. It is the guitar I love to death and should anything ever happen to it, I get another one just like it. And I just feel like the trouble is we just haven't got to that stage with, with digital SLRs because they haven't been going for that long. There just is yet to be for me anything like a camera that I expect that that'll be the last SLR I buy. Um, yeah. And you just have to kind of acknowledge, you know what, that's the world we live in. Some things have reached a state of utopian perfection, like my Fender, and other things just aren't there yet. But we, hey, we're getting along there. We're moving. Right I direction. feel the exact same way about my uh, espresso machine. I mean, I'll probably have the same espresso machine for as long as the thing cares to stay alive, you know. And there's, there's probably not a feature that could be added to it that would make it make a better cup of coffee. But people have been uh, making uh, coffees for quite some time, and it's perhaps yeah. no wonder that they've finally got around to building a... Uh, a really good one that makes it uh, everything you need. So I think that when people do, because I get that question as well, you know, seek the ultimate answer to the ultimate question. Unfortunately, you know, there, there just isn't uh, a single answer to that. And, uh, 
And the only question that's worse, Stu, and I'm sure you'd agree, is what lens should I buy? Which I always yeah. send back with, well, give me some hint as to what you want to photograph, and I might be able to offer an opinion. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree, and I also just you know just a quick remark too about these kinds of thing, these kinds of wish lists for cameras and things. You know, I think we've been over this before, but it, you just have to buy the camera that is going to work for you that, that you that you desperately, painfully need at that very moment. You know, there's a lot of people now that the Rebel T2i has just come out that are saying, ah, oh, you know, I just bought the 7D, and it's like, well. Either you bought it 30 days ago and you can return it or, you know, you bought it 90 days ago and you got 60 days of good use out of it. But if you didn't, then it's your own fault for buying a camera that you didn't immediately need. You know, we, we should buy these cameras for what they do at the moment that we buy them. And it's nice when these updates happen, but you can't necessarily go through life always hoping for the next great thing. Um, we have a couple of cameras that can achieve some pretty great work uh, in the state that they're currently in. Yeah, and they can. They can achieve really, really great work. And it's that mix of how you want to use them, what you want to do them for, that'll determine whether or not this camera works for you or not. And you know what? Uh, I, I loved the... Uh, this is, you're not going to see where I'm going with this, too, but I loved the documentary <laughs> that uh, recently came out. You can get it through iTunes, uh, which is It Might Get Loud. And in that, mm. uh, to use my guitar thing... Um, Jack White is talking about the fact that he doesn't get really nice uh, Fender guitars. He gets ones that aren't quite right, and he, and he feels that the struggle, the fight with them, actually makes him a better musician. And I, I, I think to a certain extent, um, you know, there is a point at which you just uh, work inside the limitations you've got and don't feel like they are going to make you a worse photographer or cinematographer because, quite frankly... I've seen amazing photos taken with an iPhone and I would never want to take an iPhone into battle as my primary camera. But, you know, it, it isn't always the limitations that define you in a negative fashion. And so, yeah, so you've got a 7D, so it doesn't have full-frame sensor. So go shoot some good stuff, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and yeah, it's, it's easy to get in trouble with either side of that argument. You know, these cameras have problems. These problems can be really bad. Oh no, you know, <laughs> these cameras can create amazing images. Oh, I can't believe that you're ignoring all these terrible problems. You know, uh, no matter which which uh, end of that pendulum I happen to be at when I post something on ProLast, you can bet that in the first three comments, there's going to be the opposite <laughs> end of the pendulum uh, uh, amply represented. Yeah. But look, you know, the more you understand this stuff, and that, that's why I, I was, appreciate you coming on the line with us today and geeking out, because the more I think people understand it, the more they can shoot to accommodate it and get the results they want. And uh, as long as you know what you're getting and you know what the issues are, then you can work according to, you know, your budget and your time frame and uh, your subject matter. Stu, thank you so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it. It is my pleasure, Mike. Always great to be here. Thank you, Stu. That was fantastic. Well done, Mike. Good job. Yeah, it's always good talking to Stu. Um, so uh, we've got some stuff coming up, um, unfortunately not with Stu, but in, uh, in the marvellous uh, United States of America because uh, we're both heading off, packing our bags and making mm. our way to Los Angeles and on to Vegas. Vegas. So we've got some great stories coming up uh, just to highlight some of the things we're doing. We're trying to follow up with some IMAX stereo stuff, so that should be good in Los Angeles. Uh, and then in... Vegas will actually be having a bit of a presence on the show floor, which is a bit extraordinary. Which is fantastic, yeah. It looks like we're going to have uh, a bit of a, a live sort of red centre, I guess, and um, have some guests and uh, have some time to ourselves up on the stage and uh, have some live gear reviews and, uh, yeah, some live interviews. Yeah, so on the, the Tuesday of NAB, on a booth called the Post Pit, which um, is the NAB's site, we'll be uh, actually taking over the booth pretty much on Tuesday and uh, all of Tuesday afternoon we'll be there. Uh, Ted's coming from Red. We're going to have, hopefully, a stereoscopic set up. Um, we've got guys coming from Pixar. We've got guys coming from the Foundry. We're doing HDR and HDR video, which I think will be interesting, and also discussing feature film uh, indie workflow uh, with Jason Diamond. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. I think you guys really enjoy it. Um, we're looking at both post and production. It's, it's hardcore uh, FX guide, Red Center type stuff. If you're in Vegas, uh, please come along. We'll even have, um, I won't say yet what it is, cause it's a bit of a secret, but we'll have throwaway giveaways. <laughs> throwaway we'll giveaways. Throw out to the crowd giveaways. Right, okay, not, not giveaways that you immediately want to throw, throw away. No. Okay, no. Are you kidding me? No, no, I've seen them. They're, this is very cool. It's Geek Central, yeah. <laughs> the, the in thing to be seen <laughs> with on your next shoot. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's all coming up, and we'll be giving you more information of that um, in the show notes of... 
uh, Red Centre as we lead up. We're also going to be doing a Red Centre from the show on the night of the Wednesday. Now, the reason for this is that uh, there's a Red Day happening on the Wednesday, and uh, we'll be going to that. We might even be involved in, in presenting a few things there. And then that night, we'll report from that Red Day from Vegas, and uh, that'll probably go out on Thursday or Friday of the week of NAB. So the beginning of that week, there's some other FX Guide stuff going out. And the very end of that week, the last uh, thing we'll do in Vegas before we pack our bags and put our our, our <laughs> financially depleted uh, things away and uh, and head uh, back to Los Angeles. Yeah, so please come uh, see us. And obviously we'll have more details as, as it sort of solidifies and as we get closer to that, we'll obviously be doing a, doing, doing a show just before we leave. And uh, so, yeah, we'll have a lot more details in there and a bit more uh, of a timeline for you. Um. So we have to do our Twitter shout-out, and, uh, and we have um, a very good Twitter shout-out this week, actually. Um, I think they're all really good, but this one's particularly good. A good friend of ours from New Zealand. Yes, uh, Rocket Scott. Uh, Scott from Rocket Rentals, an excellent rental house in New Zealand, in Auckland. If you need to, uh, not just red gear, but uh, they've got film gear, they've got the full, the full, the full whack. And, uh, yeah, Scott's a fantastic guy, and he tweets a lot of interesting information, not just rental gear stuff, but, you know, his own, you know, they're obviously those guys are always testing and shooting and always got some, some, something good to say. Yeah, he has an MX uh, Red in his rental pool already. Um, Jay started by calling Scott Rocket Scott because that is his that fact is Twitter his handle. Twitter so, do they still say handle? Or is that a CB radio thing from my youth? <laughs> ten four Big your, Daddy, come on, come on. It's your ten twenty. So, um, yeah, so it's Rocket underscore Scott. With two Ts. With two Ts. And uh, actually, it is a really good thing because Scott tends to come across gems in uh, in Red User, uh, Red Crack as we like to call it, yep. and he'll post those. So, if something's happening that uh, he thinks is really significant or Jim has suddenly said something, um, he's very quick at just reposting that. And so, if you're like me and... Uh, you know, you've got uh, an interest in keeping up with what's going on with that kind of stuff, then uh, he's a great person to follow. And being on New Zealand time, he's actually also more in the future than we are. He's even more <laughs> in the future than we are. I'll wake up in the morning and there'll be uh, two or three messages or tweets from, from Scott and it'll always sort of beat me to it. So thank you for that, Scotty. And uh, Will, I believe you're coming to NAB and we shall see you there as well. Uh, excellent. Yes, well, that would be the drinking night that's happening before the Tuesday. So yes, <laughs> yes. And... and, and Contrary to public opinion, Australians and New Zealanders aren't the same thing, and uh, so I think a bit of inter-country rivalry on drinking is in order. It's a bit of the uh, US-Canada thing. It's a US-Canada thing, Friendly absolutely. Rivalry. Yeah, yeah, without the hockey. No, we're rugby. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that is true, actually. <laughs> have you seen Invictus yet, talking about really good I rugby? haven't, no, no, I haven't. God, I, that's I'd, a good film. Have you seen it? Because the oh, reviews yeah. haven't been that friendly. Uh, they're great. It's okay. a really good film. Fun. If you like rugby, you, what did you play at school? Uh, nothing. Soccer in England, that was about it. Oh, in the England. freezing freaking cold. And then here, being dragged as a, as a teenager, thrown into high school where everyone knew how to play rugby, and I had no freaking idea. So I love it. I do follow it now, um, uh, Rugby Union, but yeah. uh, n- never. Not, not a player. Top. Armchair quarterback. I, I was a you know, tight head prop. So basically, you just don't get a beefier, sort of <laughs> more thuggish position than tight head prop. And if, if you've see seen you me as ever, th- you'll know that I resemble that remark. Thuggish and you, it doesn't quite go together. No, really, it's just a matter of, it's physics. It's all about mass and uh, inertia momentum. and momentum. And and not caring if your spine gets compressed. <laughs> and, you're, and yes, it's, um, it's a great sport. Union is a terrific sport. But anyway, the film is really good. Oh, yeah. um, I've got a bit of catching up because Hurt Locker's only just started here about two weeks ago and I've uh, not been able to get to it yet. So that's Another definitely on my one. list. Need to see it before... The Oscars. Oscars on Sunday. Well, Monday here in the sure. future. Yeah, and if we win, <laughs> I'm not coming to work. Okay, <laughs> thank you so much, guys, for listening. We uh, really appreciate it. And uh, keep the comments coming, as we said earlier in the yeah, show. Yeah, please do. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us, red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010, FX Guide, LLC.